You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Thank you. Well, good morning. I had visions of grandeur when we relocated from Minnesota to Iowa that it would be better in winter. Uh, My hopes have been dashed. I was out early this morning at the gas station, just felt like I could, should fill up because I'm always running on E. That's one of my nemesis. And so I pull into Casey's in Adele and the the four or five hoses are like frozen solid. I'm like, wow, what do you do? Do you take a torch? No, you don't take a torch to these things. So I had to find a gas station where somehow it wasn't iced over and freezing. And, and I echo Pastor Jason, thank you for being here. It's a bit chilly, but we're here in uh, great presence. So we're continuing our series entitled The Real Jesus, studying the Gospel of Luke. My title this morning, Preparing the Way for the Lord. And I trust it's going to be a relevant talk for all of us. But I had some fun this past week researching what it takes to prepare the way for a president to come to any North American city. Now, I'm just going to give you the cliff notes because it is an enormous process when a president uh, travels. And so it begins with the CIA. About three months before, the CIA is deployed to a city, and they are deployed in mass. Literally, an army goes out and begins checking out hotels, interviewing, background checks. What I thought was really interesting is they kind of go after those who might be sketchy in the community and warn them proactively, the president's coming to town, behave. Another interesting thing that I learned is that there has to be a trauma hospital within 10 minutes of where the president is staying. How interesting. And so a lot of pre-work. Then, as we're nearing the time of the president coming to the city, uh, they put out the dogs. And that's to sniff communities, buildings, spaces for meetings, to make sure uh, there's no bombs, bomb threats at all. And so the dogs are deployed, trained dogs and so forth. Then this cool machine, the limousine, and actually that's in disguise. That's not a limousine. That's a hybrid Humvee tank armored vehicle. This thing is a bad machine. It's got bulletproof glass. And I understand that the wheels are indestructible. How cool. Then the president flies in on Air Force One, that's uh, typical, but I did not know this, that there's always a backup plane for an emergency. Then the kicker for me was seven planes, no less than seven more planes are deployed with resources like the limo, cargo, you name it, security to make sure A president's visit to a city is safe and secure. But my favorite is this. The president, and and this is longstanding, not just in our current administration, the president has what's called a band of brothers who learn to enjoy the things the president enjoys. And so think it through. If the president liked 
horse riding, you're on the CIA, you get to horse ride with the president. If the president likes jogging like Mr. Bush did, you get to jog with the president. My favorite, I want a job with the CIA, golfing with the president. How fun that would be. So I think you would agree that it's quite a task, and this is only one aspect, folks. This hasn't even addressed the local stuff. It's quite a task to prepare the way for the presidents. In contrast to American presidents, when Jesus Christ came to Israel, I find it interesting that there was only one advanced man, and his name is John the Baptist. Well, thank you, sir. And he had a specific task, as uh, Mr. Carson suggested, to do one thing, folks, to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus. Scott already highlighted this passage, but I want to put it up on the screen. This is Zechariah's prophecy regarding his son, and it's one of the most beautiful statements in the Gospel of Luke. Dad says about his son and child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High God. For you will go before the Lord, notice, to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. And so here's what I'd like for you to think about when you think about John the Baptist. He was an evangelist. He came to prepare people's hearts to experience salvation through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I would suggest, by application, in like manner, every Christ follower has the privilege, has the mandate to do the same, to help prepare the way for people to meet Jesus. The Apostle Peter wrote these wonderful words, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. However, do it gently, do it respectfully. But isn't that a great command? Always be ready to give an answer for people who are wondering about eternal things, God things, spiritual things. What does it mean to be a Christian, to experience forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And so it begs the question already, are you prepared? If someone came up to you today and says, wow, where do you get this hope? This hope in Jesus, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? Could you prepare the way for them to come to know Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior? So I'd like for you right now to just in your mind's eye, think of your family members, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, those in your grander sphere of influence, people that you have the privilege to touch that I can't touch, people who need Jesus. And I hope in your heart, three or four people that you care for, that you love, that are in your sphere of influence, you could just, in your mind's eye right now, start thinking about them, praying for them. Lord, how can you use me to prepare the way for them to meet Jesus in 2020? Now, John fulfilled his ministry, but what's really interesting, the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospel accounts record 
he served about one year. And because he was a prophet and he had a a tough calling, if you will, he was thrown into prison and he was beheaded for the gospel. There's a theme that you're going to see in the book of Luke and Acts that there's a cost for preparing the way for the Lord. When we look at Luke 9 through 19, basically those chapters are dedicated. Jesus is fixed now on Jerusalem. And he says, consider the cost of what it means to be a Christ follower. And there's all these analogies that he gives. John considered the cost. He gave his life, imprisonment, and was beheaded. And so again, it begs the question, what's it costing us this morning to prepare the way for the Lord? Are we investing generously our time, treasure, talent, and touch to see people come to know Jesus? What a privilege that is. I love what Jesus said about John. Look at the screen, if you would, please. It's Luke 7, 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. What a great statement. And so that begs the question, what is so significant about John the Baptist that Jesus would say, among those born of women, meaning the flesh, because later he talks about the kingdom of God and how special that is, but no one born of flesh is greater than John. He's number one in Jesus' eyes. And I would suggest, folks, the answer is this. He prepared the way for people to meet Jesus. In other words, that is the mission and heart of God. God is a missionary sending God. He sends his son and blesses to be a blessing, that the gospel would impact first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, where is greatness found? I think John suggests in preparing the way for the Lord. I hope you have your connect card. I'd like to start with the blessing, then we'll take a look at the passage. The blessing is this, each one of us can prepare the way for the Lord by emulating the lifestyle of John. There is so much we could say about John, and I really had to delimit. I shrunk the text to make it fit our morning but three things that I think really are dominant in this passage. And what I chose to do, instead of reading 20 verses, I chose to walk through the 20 verses in the outline. Three points, 20 verses, let's take a look. And so, please turn, if you haven't yet, uh, to Luke chapter 3, and we'll begin with the first few verses. Luke 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, we've said before that Luke is a historian, He is precise. He is accurate. He's going to give us some names that give us some dates that seem to be blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you something, folks. Historians have examined Luke's writings and saying this guy is a precision instrument. His history is exacting. In fact, today, if you go to the Israeli Museum, you're going to see two pieces in the museum right now that highlight two individuals in this text. One is Pontius Pilate. His inscription was found in Caesarea Maritime in 1961. You could go to the Israeli Museum and see it. It's there. 
He's a real person. The other one is Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. They found the priestly tomb near the Mount of Beatitudes. So we literally have Caiaphas's ossuary. I love archaeology. I read a lot about Judaism and so forth. One Hebrew archaeologist who's at the, the top of his game said this, this is unprecedented in archaeological research. Rarely do you find two people who are alluded to in the ancient world, one text, boom, and there they are. I said this on the outset, Luke chapter 1, you can trust Luke. This is text that is based in history. And so follow along, first two verses, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Key phrase, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's the key phrase there. And so the first lifestyle that we see is that John was spiritually receptive. And friends, please do not take this for granted. Luke is relentless, as I said last week, to demonstrate the piety of these individuals, their devotion to God, first worship of God, then engaging the Word of God, and then the work of God. Once again, we see the relentless portrait of trying to develop these are spiritual people who walked with the Lord. So let me review that, Luke 1.15. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Folks, that's supernatural. But God, through Luke, wants us to know this son is divine. He is spiritually endowed. In a few weeks, we're going to learn about Jesus' first temptation in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. And it's filled with the Spirit's work, the Spirit leading, the Spirit empowering, the Spirit uh, anointing. Luke is very high on the work of the Holy Spirit. So John, in his mother's womb, filled with the Spirit. Continuing on, Luke 1.80, the child grew up, became spiritually strong, and notice, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Folks, we're talking now about 30 years. I wish I had some pictures of the wilderness. This is a pretty hot, pretty dry, pretty barren place. So John literally spent basically the first few decades up until about age 30 in this like wilderness thing. But what does it say? He grew spiritually. He grew in the grace and knowledge of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we've already heard, when John saw Jesus, he told his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew he was ready for the Messiah because he was spiritually receptive. Now to our text. And this phrase is really an important phrase. Chapter 3, verse 2. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, the phrase, God's word came to John, is vitally significant. Why? Because it helps us understand his calling, his ministry, but most importantly, his spiritual receptivity. Over 220 times, 
The Bible states this, God's word came to individuals, unique individuals like Moses, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Mary that we studied a few weeks back. But here's the beautiful thing. Not only did it come, they received it. And that's the beautiful thing that we we want to camp on this morning. We had our leadership pipeline yesterday, and we had some wonderful conversation about various things. But one of the things I think uh, we stood in awe of is just we have the privilege, folks, 2,000 years after Christ, to look back and then to add the whole uh, Abraham to Christ and so forth. Maybe 4,000-plus years of biblical history. Have you ever paused and to reflect on how wonderful and how beautiful it is to have a completed Word of God at your access, to have a study Bible, 66 different books, between 30 and 40 authors from all walks of life, written over a period of about a 1,000 years. The genres are enormous. You have history, you have wisdom literature, you have poetry, you have prophetic, you have gospel, you have epistle, you have apocalyptic. It's 66 books saying one thing, and what is that one thing? God loves us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He comes to offer us salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. John is preparing the way for that great message. He was receptive. I had a wonderful conversation, actually numerous conversations last week after worship. I love hanging out in the foyer and just connecting. And one mom came up to me and said, hey, you know, could you provide a little guidance on the best translation to make sure our kids stay engaged when they're reading the Bible, that it makes sense, that the Bible's written in their language. And so we talked about the philosophy of translations, and I made a recommendation. But the thing that I walked away with there was just the delight to see mom wanting the best translation for the kids so they could be spiritually receptive to God's word. Parents, can I encourage you this morning? Be discerning on translations. There's a lot of good translations, but some are more age-appropriate, learning-appropriate. Be discerning, and if you want to talk more, we can. Then the kicker happened last Sunday night. Uh, The Sheldahl Life Group came over our house, and we had a hoopla with them for a couple hours, and um, it was just fun. And so the time was supposed to be like 4.30 to 6.30, and it's kind of nearing 6.30 plus, and, you know, I'm wondering, whoa, are they going to be transitioning? And and so, you know, it was a long day, worship, and we had NCD, and, you know, I'm ready, ready to go to bed. I'm an old guy. So... What, what, what happened was really fun. You could kind of see, you know, John was landing the plane, winding up the life group, and then all of a sudden there was this mom circling our little island with her baby and said, wait, 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 before anybody goes, I want to hear what your plan is to engage God's word in 2020. Well, another half hour. But you know what was cool about that? We heard. And... What a great life-giving time. There is a plan. There is a desire to be spiritually receptive. The number one way the research suggests that you and I will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to be a self-feeder. I promise you this, the teaching pastors will always do their best on Sunday morning. 
but that's one meal a week. Learn to be a self-feeder as we talked about yesterday or last week. And I tell you, our life groups, man, I'm, I've been with them over the past uh, fall and new year. It's just been a joy to see life in them spiritually receptive. So one verse, Psalm 86, 11, David prays, teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. So here's the beautiful prayer. Lord, teach us. Give us your word. Open our hearts. Let us be spiritually receptive. Why? There's a goal. So I might walk in your truth. That was a great prayer David had. That's certainly John's heart, spiritually receptive. That's certainly the narrative from Genesis to Revelation. Spiritually receptive, very much fruit for God's kingdom and glory. Now, lifestyle number two. Let's keep moving. Spiritually bold and gospel-centered. How many of you have ever sat under preaching like John the Baptist? You know what that means? Hellfire and brimstone? How many of you have ever been in a place like that? Just, just one? Pulpit pounding? All right, well, John's been labeled like that. I think he's been poorly labeled, and I'm going to demonstrate why. So let's dive in. Luke 3, 3 through 7. I think John had a heart of compassion. I think he was just filled with the gospel, and he wanted the best for people. So John went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we're going to Isaiah 40. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a metaphor, a picture, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough way is smooth. And everyone will see what? Don't miss this, folks. He's gospel-centered. Everyone will see the salvation of God. Now, this is where he gets the bad rap. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. There's poison in your system. That's what he's saying. You're like poisonous snakes who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Now, would you agree that's not exactly seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive? No, John preached boldly. He preached truthfully and sometimes confrontationally, but I know this in my heart of hearts after studying John, looking at his life. He kept the gospel central, and we're going to demonstrate that. A pastor friend of mine told a story about a preacher who befriended a brilliant lawyer who was an agnostic, but because of the friendship, the, the lawyer agreed to come to church and hear the preacher preach. He came in late that morning, and he was seated in a the third row right up front by a wonderful man who had a mental disability. During the invitation, the preacher noticed that the mentally disabled man and his friend were whispering to each other. Then all of a sudden, his friend darts out of the auditorium. He storms out of there. Well, the preacher, of course, was super disappointed. He cared for the man, worked hard to build trust. Obviously, something went wrong. Well, interestingly, the next week, the lawyer came back and when the invitation was given, this quote-unquote agnostic lawyer came forward to put his faith in Christ. The preacher was astounded, but delighted and inquired, what compelled you to say yes to Jesus? His friend said, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you, 
but it really was nothing you said. You see, last Sunday when I was here, you gave the invitation. The man next to me asked, hey, would you like to go to heaven when you die? That question offended me, so I said, no. Well, then he said, go to hell. Well, the lawyer said he could not get that statement out of his mind all week. He had to come back to church and literally gave his life to Christ. That's a true story, folks. So sometimes we view John like that, right? Heavy-handed, too hard. Well, we're going to unpack that in a little bit. I want to share with you this morning three things that I've observed in John's preaching that should be true of all of us as we keep the gospel central. Number one, if you're taking notes, the gospel always addresses our problem, and it's sin. John, Jesus, Paul, it's everywhere in the Bible. John knew that before you can embrace the good news, you first have to recognize there's bad news. What is the bad news? That all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The payment or wages of sin is death. That's heavy stuff. And so look at uh, Luke 3, verse 7. Then he said to the crowds who came to him to be baptized, brood of vipers, poisonous, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, I want to encourage you because context is king. And sometimes what you do is you have to add the rest of the scripture to figure out really what's going on here. Luke says the crowds came and they did because we'll see different groups, tax collectors, people, soldiers. When you read in Matthew, you're going to find something that's really interesting. Matthew takes the same account and guess who comes? It's the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the religious establishments. I find it amazing that in Matthew 12, Jesus uses the same phrase when he confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees individually. John calls them out. Jesus calls them out. You brood of vipers. Contextually, please hear this. This statement is directed towards a target audience, and it was the religious establishment of the day. Why? Read Matthew 6 and 7. They were hypocrites. They gave, they fasted, they prayed to be seen by men. Jesus says, don't be like these hypocrites. They weren't doing the will of the Father. In fact, Jesus said it was just the opposite. So yes, John was hard where we needed to be hard. And he was soft, as we'll see, where we needed to be soft. But here's the thing. All of us have to address our sin. Well, let's talk for a moment about the religious establishment. I think the parallel to 21st century America is this. Again, at our leadership pipeline yesterday, we had a gentleman who said he grew up in Northwest Iowa. Anybody from Northwest Iowa? Okay. I was told that's the Bible belt, maybe even the Bible buckle, right? We served in Southwest Virginia for a while. That was the Bible buckle. You know what the problem is with a Bible belt or a Bible buckle? You might think your spiritual heritage saves you. Going to church or growing up in church or a denomination is the answer. It is not. Those can be great things. But those are just means to the end. What's the end? To recognize the problem, sin, and recognize God's remedy. And that's the next point, salvation. 
And so the gospel always addresses God's remedy. I call the salvation. Look at verse 3. John went into all the vicinity of the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So track with me. God's remedy for sin is repentance that leads to forgiveness that results in salvation. Now again, in some churches today, in some pulpits, in some literature, you won't hear much about repentance. I promise you this, open your Bible, anywhere you read, you will see repentance. It is absolutely a part of the gospel. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching repentance. You know what repentance is? It's so simple, folks. Repentance is this. I'm going the wrong way, sin's way, my way. I'm living self-centered. God's spirit does a work. His message comes into me. Someone's prepared the way. The truth comes. I recognize by conviction of the spirit that I need to turn from my sin, turn from myself, and turn to someone. Who's that someone? It's Jesus. That's repentance. It's a 180, going the wrong way, sin way, turn around, go the right way, God's way, Jesus. That's what John is calling for. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Now, if you think John's alone, proof text. Matthew 4, 17, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry is this, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Those are the first words, folks, when he began his preaching ministry. That's not harsh. It's just saying you go the wrong way, turn to God's way. And if you think it's different for the apostle Paul, just the opposite, Acts 20, 21, Paul's in Ephesus. He spent three years there. He summarized his ministry saying, I testify to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. I testify to Jews and Greeks that it begins with repentance towards God. Lord, I've sinned. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to go the right way. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Christ. That's beautiful. Now, John establishes our problem, sin. He presents God's remedy, salvation, repentance, turning from our sin to the Savior. Then he ties it all together with spiritual fruit. The gospel always results in spiritual fruit, and theologically we call this sanctification. Sin, salvation, sanctification. That is the gospel. And so track with me, Luke 3, 8 through 14. Look what John says. Don't miss this. He says, therefore, those who have come, those who have recognized their sin, recognize that Jesus can be the Messiah, therefore produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. In other words, if you've truly repented, we should see your fruit. Jesus taught that. It's everywhere in the Gospels and the Epistles, the book of James in particular. So let's see what fruit we're talking about. John says, and don't start saying to yourself, going back to the religious establishment, we have Abraham as our father, kind of arrogantly. John says, for I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Don't look at your spiritual heritage. Don't think that Abraham saved you or because you're a covenant people. It's the Messiah, it's Jesus. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Folks, those aren't hard words. They're just truthful words. 
Repentance that leads to salvation leads to sanctification. If there's no fruit, Jesus says, well, let's just cut the tree down. So look what happens. Three questions are asked by the crowds, and then John highlights individual groups. So what then should we do, the crowds were asking Jesus. John replies to them. The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has one, none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also asked him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Three groups. Let's take a look. The crowds, what does he say? If you're truly transformed, if you've truly repented, live generously. If you have two shirts and the guy next to you doesn't have a shirt, just give him one. Live generous. To the tax collectors, be men of integrity. Live honestly. Don't rip people off. To the soldiers, be content. And don't use your authority for selfish gain. Folks, that's fruit of repentance. The whole book of James is predicated upon this that if we have genuine faith in Christ, it should be evidenced by a fruitful lifestyle. Let me see your fruit, John is saying. What a blessing that is. So, think it through. How beautiful, gospel-centered. John starts with the problem, our sin. God's remedy, repentance, turning from sin to someone, Jesus the Savior, and then spiritual fruits. Sanctification. What a gift. It's new life in Christ. Now, what I love about this passage, and some people get a little bit confused about, where does baptism fit into this narrative, being baptized in the Jordan? Well, again, John is preparing the way. Jesus will be baptized. Pastor Jason's teaching next week on that. And then you see the book of Acts. It's just baptism. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. So here's what's, what's happening. Beautiful bap- or believer's baptism is the, what I would call, first fruit of genuine repentance and faith. Does that make sense? The book of Acts has an absolute normative pattern. You believe and you're baptized. That's what John's saying. I'm ready to baptize you. You've recognized sin. You've repented of your sin. You've turned from self and sin. You've turned to the Savior. Let's be baptized. And so in this passage, the first fruits of salvation is beautiful believers baptism look to verse chapter 3 verse 21a when all the people were baptized all the people who have repented of their sin and trusted the messiah then they were baptized it's the sign now sticking with luke acts 238 the church is born peter preaches notice this luke uh, acts 238 the same question is asked. There's thousands of people in Jerusalem, and Peter's preaching. says, Peter, what should we do? Do you remember what Peter said? Repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sin. It's the same thing. And the church adopted that beautiful methodology. And so you move through the book of Acts. Everywhere you see belief, you'll see baptism. Cornelius, Acts 10. Paul. Saul, Acts 9, Philippian jailer, Lydia, Acts 16, and the list goes on and on. Beautiful thing. So can I encourage you? We have a few pictures up here on some previous baptisms. 
do a little bit of reminiscing going back to our 10th anniversary and just in recent days. Our next baptism is two weeks. And our encouragement is, um, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've not yet been baptized as a believer, we encourage you, take that next step. And so you can sign up online, talk to any of the pastors, and so forth. Now, lifestyle number three, let's tie it all together. Spiritually humble. And again, there's so much more we could say here, but we're going to focus on one thing. Check with me for the next uh, few verses. Verse 15. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were debating in their minds whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that never goes out. And along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed, notice, don't miss this, good news to the people, the gospel. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him about Herodias, his brother's wife, and about all the evil things Herod had done, added this to everything else. He locked John up in prison. Here's what I've learned about humility over the years. A truly humble person has the vision to see God's hand in another person's life and applaud it. Let me say that again. A truly humble person has the vision to see God's hand in another person's life and applaud it. That's what John's doing here. Are you the Messiah they're saying? No. There's someone who's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. He must increase the Messiah. I must decrease. That's the heartbeat of John. John remained unaffected by his own importance. He was free from competition and ego. John knew his task was to prepare the way for Jesus, and he humbly achieved it. The spirit of humility, folks, goes a long way in helping people come to see Christ. Part of my testimony is this. I ran with a bunch of hard guys in high school, arrogant men, prideful men who looked down on people. And when they came to Christ, and I'll never forget the first meeting when they shared their testimonies, I saw humility, I saw brokenness, I saw different people, and it just compelled me. I leaned in to their humility. So I believe this, a person's message will always be heard in the context with their character. A person's message will always be heard in the context of their character. John was humble. And I think because of that, his message was more receptive. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. Hopefully you got some uh, invite cards. Alpha's beginning in a few weeks. We're talking about preparing the way for the Lord. I'll say that again. Alpha is beginning in a few weeks. All right. That was just a hybrid. Man, women, something in there. Um, We had a great semester the first round. We are encouraging you. This is one ministry, just one at Westwind, to help you prepare the way for Jesus and other people's lives. With all that said, please check out uh, a quick video. gives you a, a synopsis of Alpha. Life is busy. Every day we ask questions like, what's happening today? 
What should I wear? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are bigger questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? These are some of life's big questions, but there's rarely enough time to think them through. That's why Alpha exists. Alpha is a place to explore life's big questions in a safe and open environment. It's a series of sessions where anyone can share their thoughts and opinions and ask questions without feeling judged. When you come to an Alpha, you'll notice that first, there's food. Whether it's a full meal or a light snack, this is the time to get to know each other in a casual setting. Next, you'll watch an Alpha talk. The talks are created to engage and spark conversation. They explore big issues around faith from a Christian perspective. After the talk is a time for discussion. This is the most essential part of any Alpha. It allows everyone to share their own opinions on the ideas presented in the talk. It's a time for people with different thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to ask honest questions and have open conversations. Every week, there are guests coming for the first time to an Alpha in their community. Alpha is for everyone, regardless of background or beliefs. There's no pressure, no follow-up, and it's completely free to attend. Come and explore life's big questions. Find an Alpha near you today. Let's stand. We're going to close in worship. But we gave you a few invite cards. The invite cards are very specific. This is called the launch party. We are asking you to be courageous enough, bold enough, loving enough to just reach out and, and invite some folks. Get them to the launch party, pray, trust that God will work, and then the semester will begin. So that's the key date, uh, February 9th. It's at our office complex, 5 to 7. It is free. It is a friendly environment. God worked the first alpha. We're trusting this is just one way to prepare the way for people to meet Jesus. So let's worship, and as we sing and reflect on our privilege, and yet our responsibility to prepare the way for the Lord, will we engage? Can you put a name to one of these invites? That's what I do, and pray through it, and reach out. Let's do our part and see the kingdom come. Like John, prepare the way for the Lord. Let's worship together.